Thank you for joining the Leadership Podcast with Sim Dendy. It is great to have you with us. Leadership is all about bringing change, making a difference. But Christian leadership is more than change for the sake of change. It's about modeling a different way to lead, the Jesus way. To be the servant of all, to think of others before ourselves and to respond to the issues of injustice that we know are all around us. In this season of the Leadership Podcast, we are exploring leadership and justice. Yes, a big topic, but don't worry, we have some big guests for you to listen to and learn from. Before we head to this week's interview, can I encourage you, however you are listening to this podcast, hit subscribe now so you automatically get all the future episodes. And if this content is helpful to you, can I ask you to share on social media or send it to a friend so it can be helpful to other leaders out there and we can build a community of Christian leaders serving one another. Today's interview is with Deborah Green. Deborah is an OBE. She is the National Director and Founder of the charity Redeeming Our Communities, often known as ROC, R-O-C, founded in 2004. And she is frequently asked to speak at events and conferences because she is an amazing speaker. She has over 25 years of experience in bringing organizations together towards the goal of social transformation, starting in our home city of Manchester. Since 2004, this work has expanded and she has acted as a consultant to many other towns and cities with significant results. Such work has attracted interest from public services and local authorities who are impressed by her proven track record and results achieved. She received her OBE in 2012 in recognition of her services to community cohesion. Deborah has also had several books published, most recently Rock Your World, Changing Communities for Good in 2014 or Mountain Moving Prayer just a couple of years ago. Well, thank you so much, Deborah, for joining us today on the Leadership Podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thanks so much. I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> you say that now with confidence and a smile. Uh, we will see. But before we talk about things like, I don't know, the OBE, all the different events, especially the prayer stuff, your relationship with the, the police force around the UK, building community cohesion so many more things i'd like to ask the question a bit of the uh, you know the kind of the founder origin story where did it all begin where did you go to school what did you study all those kind of questions you know can you tell a little bit about the uh, the slightly smaller version of deborah Gree, the younger version yeah definitely i i was born in manchester in a place called middleton and um then we moved when I was about five, we moved to London to Bromley because my dad got a job in the city. And then when I was about 11, moved back to Manchester, but onto the south side of Manchester. Um, I was a bit of a, a naughty girl at school. I didn't always sit and sit in neatly, you know, concentrating on my studies. And I remember teacher saying to me, um, you are not going to pass any of your GCSEs and you're not going to achieve anything in life. And as you probably heard other people say, that can sometimes have the reverse effect, can't it? So I ended up going to college, reset all my exams, got my A-levels, went to study for a Bachelor of Education at university because I wanted to be a teacher. So that's a little bit about me. I've got a brother and a sister. Yeah, most of my life spent in Manchester, Sport Manchester City. I am married to Frank, got four children, seven grandchildren. Wow. Um, 
Uh, but I didn't stay as a teacher. I, I ended up moving into uh, leading a charity, which is actually 17 years old this week, Rock. And um, we we were all about reducing crime in Manchester, but it sort of grew bigger than that. Yeah, so that's, that's just a little bit about me. And um, uh, we'll get into some of that conversation about how Rock started, because I think it's fantastic. And it's, its roots are amazing and how it came out of like 17, that's incredible, years ago. Uh, but I'd like to talk a little bit more about your family because I know you're really proud. I mean, I've worked with you a few times, Deborah, and, and if you can talk about your children or how amazing your family, your grandchildren are, if you could, you would quite happily do that. And I love, and your, your children, obviously, they are amazing because you tell me how amazing they are. But tell me more about how you, how do you be so busy as a, as a leader of a charity, a substantial charity, and yet you find so much more time for, ch- for your family, to create belonging um, you never miss out those opportunities to build family um, yourself as well as busy trying to build community and family for other people yeah I don't I think you've made me sound better than I am I don't think my kids would always agree <laughs> that I managed to spend time a, a few years ago they a little bit of a coup to try and get me to give up work because they wanted more grandparent time and I thought I resisted that pressure. It's all about a balance, isn't it? I, I, I would be rubbish if I just devoted myself to one particular thing. Um, yeah, family is really important to me. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't a person of faith until after I got married. And um, just shortly after I got married, I became a Christian. And um, I really felt that uh, I was given an opportunity really to, live a different kind of life than the one that I might have led um, and that inevitably involves the children and they all get to have been brought up in church which I wasn't brought up in church so that's a big difference there and then just seeing you pray for your kids I'm a bit, bit passionate about prayer as you know and you pray for your kids and you want them to follow Jesus and you, but you want them to fulfill the um, purpose that God has for their life. What does God want for their life? And that was really important to me. So spend time with the family, but it's just a big juggling act because Frank and I were leading a church. We bring up a family and then I stopped at charity um, and, and, and we're always very busy. But I think what we did was included the kids in those ministry things and what that did was to develop a sort of resilience and confidence in them that you don't always see in young adults so I think there will be if you talk to them about it they'll probably say all the all the disadvantages of being brought up in that kind of way but I I can see the pathway that they're on now and the way that they're fulfilling God's call on their life yeah, I know that many of them are involved in church and ministry, and um, that's that's fantastic. And as a parent, as a grandparent, it must be great to see children following in in some of the things that you've sort of pathfinded and you know created. Um, yeah. That must be lovely. I, I know for me, working with you, you know, your your faith is really infectious. It isn't something uh, that's distant or kind of like it's down the. So that you know the kind of the priority list it's right at the forefront you know i don't think you can get a few words past to you there before you start talking about jesus and about your faith and about how important it is to you but how did your christian faith come real for you personally you mentioned it was after you got married 
Yeah, it was actually on our wedding day and it's quite an unusual story because we got married in a church and as we were singing the 23rd Psalm, the Lord's my shepherd, I just felt the presence of what I now know to be the Holy Spirit and bearing in mind we shouldn't really be getting married in a church and in the old-fashioned way was, you know, you had to be you had to be part of church or be have be a person of faith to get married in church which we neither of us were felt the presence of the holy spirit didn't really know what exactly what it was but knew it was spiritual presence and um checked with frank after the service and he felt it as well and we discussed it on the way to the um reception um the wedding reception in the car and that was the thing that was a turning point in my life because Jesus actually came searching for me I wasn't necessarily searching for him but I knew there was something missing and he just thought right now's the time to step in to Deborah's life or probably he's always been in my life but to step in in that kind of significant way and for me to realize that and then six months later I became a Christian that's an ama- that is an amazing story. The fact that in the middle of your wedding day, you're having a conversation with your husband about the presence of God in the middle of yeah. it. I, I, that's I love that because um, because I know I've been involved in many uh, weddings, and often you do sense there's something about the presence of God in that middle of that moment as two lives are being joined together. What yes. a great moment for someone who doesn't didn't know God at that time. I mean, that's amazing. But you you went on not just to to follow Jesus, but really to lead other people in the ways of of Christ. Um, and I'd love to know a little bit more. And I don't I know it's so easy if you're a female leader. It's such the obvious question. I get that. But I'll, I'd love to hear a bit of some of the challenge behind you stepping forward as a leader in an evangelical church as mm. a woman and not just as Frank's wife, but in your own right that you were leading. And how was that for you as a young Christian, as a, a young woman? How was that? So we're going back to the the 1980s here. So this is a very different climate to what we have now in terms of women being acknowledged. I still think there's a way to go even today. But in terms of the inequalities, um, I was the first woman that was able to administer communion in my church, which is Altrincham Baptist Church. And then I went on to become the first female elder at the, the church that we then led, Ivy, Ivy Church in Manchester. And there was a there was a five year battle to get to to get the church to the point where they would say yes women can can lead. I mean women could lead certain things, but it was this idea of you you could lead you could lead in the Sunday school, but but you couldn't um, lead the service. And there was all these discrepancies, and there were very few role models. There were people like Faith Forster. Elaine Storkey, one or two people that I knew of who were leading in some kind of way, but there just wasn't there. So you didn't really have, uh, you, you, you weren't mentored into it. In, 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 and if you were mentored, you were being mentored by a man. And so that was all quite interesting. So we, we had this five-year teaching plan, Frank did, because he was always passionate to release women into leadership. And um, after five years, I was the only woman that was prepared to stand, which was a bit unfortunate because I was actually married to him. So he felt like, you know, it was a, a deal of you buy one, get one free kind of thing, two for the price of one. 
<laughs> so, you know, that was challenging. So we had all of that and it was a challenge and nobody could teach you how to do it, but you just had to be yourself and rely on the Holy Spirit. And and I know you say that this is a long time ago and this, you know, it's different now. I, I, I often say that and I get pushback from younger uh, leaders who say to me, this is still a challenge for us in our church, in our circumstances, yes. in our denomination, that we're not feeling released or the role models. And and, and yes. you and I have a very strange connection. I don't know if I've told you this before, but probably in the 1990s, I was involved in a church on the South Coast and we were grappling with this conversation about women elders. And my friend, Becca, who's now the leader of the church there, it was like, a, can we do this? Is, it, is this the right thing? And we actually used Frank's paper. He'd written some stuff around women <laughs> leaders. And we yeah. used that as a starting point to get really? us talking through the different views on on theology and leadership. And and and, and so I don't know if I ever said that to you, but we found yeah. it really helpful to get us started, having the conversation, having the really robust and difficult conversation. And I know I've spoken to leaders even the last two months who this mm. is still a very much a today conversation. Yes, it is. Uh, you have to teach every generation because each generation then is influenced by the teaching that they're receiving in church. And unfortunately, some of the teaching from the United States of America, which can be great, is, you know, there's, there are people who are, who are trying to bring back um, this idea of, um, of, of male leadership over female leadership and there's there's so many ways in which you have to then completely reteach because the younger people don't know the history of where we've come from and what it was like you know for my generation to break those through those barriers so they it's it's very challenging you talk to some younger people today and you can see those prejudices are starting to re-emerge which concerns me quite a bit because you think you've, I've got a few scars yeah. <laughs> and I don't mind that as long as other people get the benefit. I don't want them to have to go through the kind of challenges that I had to go through in my generation. Yeah. And I think it's really important. We do talk about it. I, you know, I know I speak to people that say, I've just, I've just been there. I've talked about it so often for all of my sort of, you know, years I've been just talking about being a woman and being a leader, you know, can someone else have a go now? But I think you're absolutely right. Having a role model, having someone and this word will get connected to you a lot trailblazer pioneer you are that sort of person you always said there's a different way of doing things and yeah. i think it needs to be heard needs to be seen um you know we've worked hard at the big events we're involved with to make sure the platform is shared by people of every gender and ethnicity so we are reflective of the kingdom of god but we must never assume and i've been guilty of just assuming everyone understands this is how it is but we have to show it we have to we have to reinforce and reenact like yeah. you say, every generation. Retell the story and help people, give place people into courage to do what they what what the calling is on their life. And it might not be leadership, but the ones that feel completely inadequate and underqualified, which was certainly myself back in the day, and to, to say, actually, you can do it. Yeah. And I remember some. Your husband says it to you, but that doesn't really count sometimes because they they would they would want to encourage you anyway. They love you anyway. But it's when the likes of people like Martin Scott, I remember him coming up to me at a conference and standing talking to me. And even then, some people wouldn't even approve of that. But standing talking to me and saying, 
I really think you've got a leadership gift. I really want to pray for you and started to pray and prophesy over my life thinking, gosh, somebody else thinks that I'm able to do this. And that's and people like yourself, Sim, the way that you've modeled that, where I've worked with you at Spring Harvest, it's just so affirming mm. to, 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 to sort of spur you on. Well, it's, it's it's so important. I remember an experience I had, and we won't carry on this for too much longer, but I remember an experience I had. I went to a, a very large church in America and I went to their pastors' meeting. And uh, this church had like 40 congregations and a multi site church, and we had a pastors' meetup. And I'm sitting in the room. It wasn't that long ago. I was sitting in the room and I thought, something's odd here. I looked around. I could not work it out for the life of me what was going on. Something was just strange. And then there's this moment, honestly, no word of a lie. Um, it's, it's the tea break time. And, and a woman walks in with a tea trolley. And then I realize there are no women in this room. They are all male pastors. And for me, I think we're so weaker when we're sitting in a room having conversation about God's church and half his church isn't represented in some some way. And, mm. and I just, that experience for me was a moment I thought, we cannot do that again. We can't go to that. You know, I've got, I've got a lot of time for, you know, getting the right people in the room. But if we're not representative, then yeah. it's not a very healthy conversation. So that's right. Um, so thank you for what you've done in, in trailblazing for other people to follow. And 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 um, let's, let's talk a bit more about, um, we want to talk about justice today. And I know it's something really important to you. And, and in some ways, even what we're talking about there is a an issue about justice, about making this mm. fair and right. Um, but how did you get involved in the area of prayer and justice? What was your kind of, was there a particular moment? Was there like a, a trigger point for you? Uh, what kind of happened that made you go, this is something that's really core to my belief? Well, I, it started with, I had a vision. Um, I was, I probably wasn't, I, I was quite a young Christian um, living in Manchester, attending Altrincham Baptist, which is in the suburbs, um, in the south side of Manchester, a little bit, you know, of a, of a more middle class area. And I had this vision of, of connecting people together. And it was, it was called, we called it Strong Towers. And there were all these towers and they were strong but the, the problem was there were gaps in between and there was no connectivity. Um, the uni- unity wasn't really a thing. You know, we didn't have that. D.L. Moody said, I can't go to Manchester to evangelise because there's no unity. So, you know, evangelism is not really going to be as effective. Um, so I had this vision. And in the vision, there was a sort of sinister character um, riding in between these gaps, in between the strong towers and just causing havoc. And I suddenly realised, and then I saw these walls being built, connecting the towers together, and then there was fruitfulness after that, and the enemy wasn't actually able to get to, to ride in and out. And I realised the Lord wanted me to start a, um, a prayer network, it became, of getting churches together to pray, as a result of that, in around 1990, and Gerald Coates actually prophesied over us the number seven, which turned out to be seven years of prayer between 93 and the year 2000. And as uh, toward the end of that, in 1998, we started praying for the police because we pray for schools, we pray for business, we pray media, health. And we started praying for the police and something really touched my heart around praying for the police. And I think that's where the justice side came in because we had this nickname, Gunchester, 
And I thought, I can't be Christian, live in a city that's nicknamed Gunchester and not do anything about it. So we started praying for the police. And I thought it was just prayer, to be honest, Sim. I just thought, oh, this is me being called to get churches together to pray. That's the calling on my life. That's what I'll be doing forever. And I didn't realize that prayer was just that powerful first step. And that prayer then had to become action. And in 2004, we set up Rock, which was... Mm not just praying for the police, but working strategically with the police to, to lower crime, to reduce. We actually boldly said, we're going to pray, but we actually want to reduce crime. And how did you go about, because my experience as a church leader is that people who love praying don't always love doing. They don't love getting their hands dirty is probably a little bit too harsh, but, you know, almost yeah. kind of getting active in their community. And then there are those that just love serving and doing stuff that really go see prayer as a bit of a pain before we start the litter picking we'll do a prayer and i'm yeah. like going you know or the people that pray just want to pray about those who are going litter picking and we're like going where's the place where we go we pray and we do and yeah. you know faith and action i think it's quite a biblical sort of premise how so, do you manage to combine the two and sort of grapple those two extreme uh you know just approaches i guess it's a really good question. I, I'm, I don't like prayer, which isn't accountable. I mean, there is a sense in which prayer is pure, pure in and of itself because you're building, you're speaking to creator God. And that that is a worthwhile activity, even if nothing happens. But then I feel like, what are we praying for and how are we measuring the answers, as it were, and making ourselves accountable to those prayers. And I think it's when we started doing that in the early days, we would produce a, a little research document on, we're praying for schools tonight, we're talking to school governors, we're talking to teachers, and we're talking to pupils. And we're wanting to find out what some of the key issues are. So I'm interviewing the folks, it's a bit like um a magazine show, prayer, prayer magazine show. And then we're finding out specific information from them about bullying, say, for example, or um, educational uh, inequalities within the education system and all a host of things. And then we're thinking, hang on a minute. So now we've got to be specific with our prayers. And then we want some kind of measure. What did God do? Which we're then recording. And that whole process changed something in me to think, well, I can't just pray. I have to, you see this in Nehemiah, don't you? So you, you then become the answer to your own prayers. And that whole process started in me in, you know, early, early stages of being a Christian. And now I'd say it's even more prevalent now than ever before. Every Friday we have a prayer meeting here at our headquarters. People come in by Zoom people are in the room and we just we want to see that those prayers active activated within a week you know it used to be within a year it's in a week now because it, things are so urgent we've just got yeah. to we've got to follow it up yes I, I love your passion around prayer and it's it's so being important integral to your work i mean tell us about rock we need to say to words listening rock is roc redeeming our communities um tell us about you know i remember festival manchester and those kind of buzzy days of you yeah. know we want revival and you know that the, the message tribe and uh you know soul survival that kind of stuff all combining you were right in the middle of that kind of you know kind of <laughs> test bed of activity i mean amazing idea can you tell us a bit about that moment where rock came from 
Yeah, actually, rock really came from Festival Manchester because we, funnily enough, we're doing another one next year, 2022, we're doing another Festival Manchester. And so it was Andy Hawthorne who recruited me because he'd see, I suppose he he really is passionate about, he's an evangelist, as people might know, but he's very passionate about prayer and he always has been. And he, he often says from platforms that that mission could not have happened without those seven years of united prayer um, where we prayed for him and he had two members of staff uh, back in 1993 and you everyone can see how fast how big the the message trust has grown in eden and all the community groceries and all the related things that they do now so festival manchester i was responsible for church liaison uh, back in 2003 and I had to recruit 500 churches to be part of that festival which I did 519 get churches of different denominations and streams to work together and we did the social action and remember social action then was quite an unheard of thing people were ringing us up and saying what do you mean by social action we had to write a book about it so people didn't really know what social action was back in the day. It's a bit like you said, Sim, some churches um, didn't really see that, you know, as part of the gospel as such. You preached the gospel and you did the spiritual piece, but social action was the social gospel. We yeah. didn't do that as well. Yeah. So we did that Festival Manchester. And then people kept coming up to me saying, how can you help us with our city can you come here and give us some advice about how do this church unity piece how do you get church praying together how do you do the social action how do you work with the police and so they said you need to set up your own charity so I thought okay I don't know how to do that so we set the charity up in 2004 we did the launch at the Reebok and by 2006 it had gone national but it was all about Yes, it's about mission, but for me, mission has to include uh, feeding people and feeding people and, and dealing with people's social needs. And I don't think you can have, personally, I don't think you can have revival without that. If you've got a revival where people are coming to Christ, but the crime rate is still soaring and, you know, people are still poor, and people have to keep going to food banks. How could that be real, full-blown revival? That has to change those statistics. So, yeah, we're um, Festival Manchester was the start of it, and we're doing another one next year. And now people do know what social action is. Yeah. And, and, and arguably, maybe sometimes I think we need to then make sure we, we keep our social action pure. We're not just busy doing good we are making sure that we are preaching the gospel. For me, we, we're in danger of pendulum swinging the other extreme, that we're all about social justice. And we forget why we're doing it in the first place. Could you comments on that at all? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a balance. I think I, I, see, I still see the extremes happening. I still see one extreme is we only, we're only um, doing a food bank because we want to get you onto an alpha course. And I think people can see through that. The other extreme is we do the food bank and we don't know what we're going to do with you next. You know, we're not confident enough in our faith or in Jesus that he wants to come into your life and we don't really want to go there. Mm. So there is that, there is that balance. And I think 
it's living the life actually 24 7 that's what what will the only thing that will do it is I've got to be consistent about how I love people and show them that love and that love in action and how I then are able to answer their question about well I believe you're a Christian or have you have you not just written a book on prayer and what's that all about but I think I'm waiting for them to really look at that and see that in my life so there is that balance but yeah we want to see revival really don't we? we want people to know Jesus because he is ultimately the only one who can really radically change a person's life like he did with mine like he did with yours yeah oh so good now i want to read a a quote to you that i came across it says it's about about rock about your charity and the quote is this says since the rock project opened in bolton the local police have reported a 75 percent reduction in antisocial behavior and that's having a wider impact than just numbers on a piece of paper yeah. I mean, do you ever get tired of hearing those kind of statistics about the impact your work is having? No, it's it's incredible. I think that's one of the better statistics. I think we usually around about 40, 45 percent. But that one was incredible. And that, again, is when people followed it up with action. And it involves working with young people because um, boredom is the is the main cause of antisocial behaviour. And so we, we can complain about antisocial behaviour, but if there isn't enough for young people to do, then the crime rates are going to be higher. Um, we, we go back to that mention that I had of Gunchester and we did the big, big prayer meeting where we prayed about no more Gunchester. Six months later, we saw headline news, is this the end of Gunchester? In the Manchester Evening News, crime has fallen by 37% in the last six months, which is incredible because it had been six months since we'd made that declaration. So, yeah, it's really important to me that we are helping the police and the detection of crime is still incredibly important. You can't just replace that with prayer, but that the church is there to play its part in reducing crime. Now, now, talk to me about your relationship with the police, because this is a fantastic image I have in my head of, of you knocking on a police chief's door and saying, I'd like to help you. Um, I organise prayer meetings. And, yeah. and, and I, I know that you've been doing this long enough now that the police chiefs talk to each other and say, it's OK, Deborah's quite safe. But those first few times you try to persuade these hardened police chiefs who are desperately trying to, you know, work out a way to manage crime in their, you know, community, and you turn up going, "It's okay, we've got this. We'll pray." How, how do some of those conversations go? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I don't always tell them about the prayer at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they find that out along the way. Um, how you, you say that, but I remember you did a big prayer event in Manchester Velodrome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and you got the, all the police chief at the prayer meeting. So they, they must have known at that point they, yes. was, they were part of something. So we invited, um, I think, about 20 chief, uh, um, chief constables to attend that event. And nine of them came, which was incredible. I think surprisingly, maybe surprised to some people to know that quite a lot of chief constables have got faith. We know of we know of a number of chief constables. Sir Peter Farhi, who was the chief constable of Manchester, for example, up until recently, was a person of faith. Or, but they had their faith in a kind of compartment that they didn't bring into the workplace. 
which which was a thing and still is a thing to some extent. Matt Baggett's and Matt Baggett's Christian. So we invited these. Um, and, and I think the reason why they came is because by then they they know the reputation of rock. And you mentioned it before about trust. They can trust you that they're coming into a safe place and they're not going to feel exposed, that we're not going to ask them any questions that are going to trip them up, that we're going to treat them with respect. And we're going to show people that they are real human beings with um, hobbies and interests and uh, human characteristics. They've got families. They, you know, they hurt like everybody else. And we're going to take them out of the uniform, as it were, and just show them, show people who they are as people. And then we're, they, in return, the police officer is going to feel affirmed and feel, um, this is probably the, I've had officers say this to me lots of times, this is the first time we've ever been thanked. Wow. One senior police officer gave his life to Jesus three months after our event because he said a hard shell around his heart just melted when we affirmed them and they got a standing ovation and we we said thank you for what you do and how you look after vulnerable people and you serve our communities and he gave his life to Jesus three months later people are real people so it was that but after that Gunchester headline the interesting thing was Sir Peter Farhi then got appointed as chief constable. He'd been in the crowd that day. He'd been one of our VIP guests. And I made an appointment to go and see him. And, you know, I'm, I'm quite a naive person. And I think that's why I get away with a lot of stuff, <laughs> because you, you shouldn't really be trying to get an appointment to see a chief constable. Um, but I just... I just believe in going, you know, asking it will be given, seeking you'll find that whole thing. Got an appointment to see him. And because of what he'd seen happen with his own eyes around that crime reduction um, and how he'd felt affirmed and how the other officers had been affirmed that day, he trusted me. He says, I actually want a strategic relationship with Rock. And it moved from being a thing of, just prayer or prayer to a thing of the prayer and action. Yeah. Um, and, and that's how the president, but I, I go into the, I make appointments to these places, um, chief constables and chief execs and these kinds of people. Mm -hmm. And I say to them, tell me what you have got on your list. You know, what is troubling you? What is uh, causing you sleepless nights right now? Give me your top three or four things and there will be probably a matchup of, of how we can help you. And that's how it all started, really. Amazing. Now, I know you're not encouraging people necessarily to knock on their police, uh, their chief yeah. constable's doors, um, but this is where Rock comes in, is yeah. you can help that process. And um, tell us about, you know, you're not just a Manchester-based charity, you're now all around the UK in various cities and towns. Um, tell us about the Rock conversations where you help to shape community around a common cause. Tell me about yeah. how that came around and how they work. Yeah, I think I think we've got to learn the culture first before we can walk through the door. So there will be someone within where, you know, we have the conversation that can represent all the others and possibly have that conversation with the chief constable. But that that takes a little bit of time to learn. 
Um, so the conversations we've done around, we, we keep trying to work, work out how many we've done because we've been doing them for about 10 years. We've done around 250 of them around the UK. Uh, last week we were in Cheltenham, next week we're in Bristol, so on and so forth. And what we're really trying to do with the conversation is get everybody together under one roof. And that in and of itself is an outcome because people haven't met each other before. There isn't, sometimes we hear people say lots of good things going on, but it's not really connected. You know, we have, it's not joined up. There's duplication, there's competition. So get people together and under one roof, celebrate the good things that are happening in community. And that's massively important and thank people for what they're doing. And it's such a positive atmosphere when we do that. Then we do this wishing line exercise, which is quite new, where we hang up a, a, like um, a washing line and we call it a wishing line. And we've got yellow and green luggage labels on the table. And when on the yellow, we say, write down what you need for your project. You need a table tennis table. You need some sports equipment. You need some uh, volunteers. You need some funding. You need a building. And put your mobile number on there. And then on the green, write down something that you're prepared to give, whether that's a building space or, you know, finances or you're an IT um, technician that can help set up the computers or whatever. And then we do a match up on this wishing line. If you've just seen... Uh, just the visual of it is incredibly powerful and we pick out some on the evening and we get a match up straight away so men in sheds which is a project you may have heard of encouraging men to speak together while they do a practical activity they needed a building urgently and the chief of fire service was there that day and he wrote down I've got a community fire set station, which I'm willing for somebody to use. And men in sheds ended up getting this community fire station for free. Wow. And that's yeah. just one example of this wishing line thing that goes on. I often say, you know, if you need a boyfriend, I can't really help you, but we can get you um, <laughs> something practical, something tangible yeah. for you. Project. Having said that, a little bit of matchmaking does sometimes go on. There we go, um, a little side hustle. So, so if, if somebody wants to find out how they could get involved with rock, how they could uh, start a rock conversation in their community, um, you know, they'd like to work in partnership or they'd like to run a wishing line and find out if they can share some resources. Uh, is it just going to your website? Is that the best way for people to start the conversation with you? Yeah, because there's a few film, some film footage of what happens at a rock conversation on the website. And We've got to the stage now where we're working with most of the police forces across the UK and we can give they we can give them testimonials about what has happened in terms of things like crime reduction, but also increased community cohesion. They want to see communities better connect, especially coming out of pandemic and social needs being addressed and more collaboration and all those kinds of things that a generator of conversation so they would um, come to us and say we'd like to have a conversation and then it's looking at how that is going to be funded and that would usually be funded by a police and crime commissioner local authority um, 
occasionally it's funded by the church. So some churches come together and fund, but quite often um, churches have benefited from being part of a conversation, but they haven't had to pay for it because there's usually social needs that exist in that community which are costing a lot of money to address. And having a conversation then becomes very cost effective for whoever's paying for that. And it could even be businesses. We've had businesses pay for conversations as well because, you know, they have a problem. For example, McDonald's have a problem with antisocial behaviour outside their restaurants, which is stopping them from making money effectively so they could invest in a conversation uh it it makes financial sense for the business to be involved so uh, we're going to start wrapping things up but i guess some of my questions maybe quicker questions could be um around some of that i mean we'll put the information on our website we'll make sure it's available for people for direct them to your your website and so forth and uh, all different resources you have available including some books you've written as well Uh, but what what would you say as a leader has been one of your greatest moments i know you've got your obe um deborah green obe uh but but (laughs) what would that be your greatest moment Is is there a moment you go that was a moment for me as a leader that was a moment and i say that because my mum had told me she thought I was going to get an OBE before she passed away so it meant a lot to me she she wasn't there to see me receive it but the fact that she said it and I didn't really know what an OBE was when she told me that it that so that was a personal moment but I have to say that we received that OBE on behalf of all of our volunteers and staff who work incredibly hard to make rock what it is we've got probably over 800 volunteers so that was a proud moment but the thing I think why it was a really defining moment is because the doors that it's opened and I know some people don't when they when they get their letter to say they're being uh, given an OBE they refuse them don't they for political reasons or whatever um but I, I it has genuinely opened up a lot of doors for us and taken to a new level I think 2018 was another well 2014 was a great year because we got the, our rock headquarters here at the fuse which is a five million pound state-of-the-art building which we were given on a 22-year rent-free lease so 20, 2012 did open the doors with the obe 2014 we got rock a headquarters a free building which has been incredible for us and then 2018, the Royal Connections, being invited to Meghan and Harry's wedding, going to get on my Queen's Award for voluntary service, Buckingham Palace. Princess Anne came to visit us here um, for a restorative justice patron. You know, there were just so many divine appointments and divine connections. I don't know. I think the best is probably still yet to come, though. Hey, like that idea. Now, a couple more thoughts for you. I've had the pleasure of working with you a number of times and you, you know, you're know, you CEO of a, a successful charity. You just mentioned a whole bunch of people that many people would love to have those connections with and awards you've received. But when I've worked with you, you've not been the, the senior leader. You, you've not been in charge and yet your influence is huge. And I've loved watching the way you're praying for people behind the scenes. You're encouraging them. You're speaking uh, words over them. And, you know, you're, you're part of the team. You're engaged. And I'd love you to sort of talk for a moment about how do you lead when you're not in charge? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think you've got to be prepared to serve other people's 
vision and I've always been passionate about that because I've looked at some people and, and, and seen that as a bit of a missing trait you know if I'm not leading this I'm not really fully engaged with it um I like serving behind other people's visions and just serving people I'm a people person I suppose so that just comes naturally to me and like to connect people connector of connectors and just spend time with people and see what what God has got for their life so I love serving vision as well as leading something I often don't tell people that I'm leading things um because I don't know I just want to get to know them as a person and sometimes people do feel a bit intimidated by leaders don't they you know they're like oh you're a leader so you can do all these things but I could never do that and that isn't true, you know, that they can, they're not going to be the same as you, but they can still grow in itself. So I love, I love serving behind the scenes. I love that idea of getting people to know them as people before they know your role, your position. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you've really inspired many of those listening today. And, and in this podcast, we often say that when leaders get better, everyone wins. Um, so yeah. what final piece of advice would you give a Christian leader who wants to get better when it comes to tackling the huge issue of justice? I think you've got to listen in your own personal development. I think you've got to listen to people who are around you, who are different from yourself and not just surround yourself with all the yes people who agree with you and like you or say that they like you. Um, I think in terms of developing leadership in the community, I think you've got to go out of your comfort zone and learn somebody else's language. You've got to become bilingual. You've got to, and that involves a lot of listening and asking people, you know, what could we do to help you and not having any other motive there, no strings attached, because, you know, kindness will bounce back always, every time. It, and it's your character that's the most important thing because people get to know you as a person. Yeah, that's so good. I love that phrase, kindness will bounce back. What a great uh, final piece of advice. Thank you so much, Deborah, for your time today. Thank you for joining us on the Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Sim. Well, what a wonderful conversation with Deborah Green today. I hope you found that really helpful. If you want to find out more about Deborah's work and the charity Rock that she leads, please head to rock.uk.com. Um, we will also make sure these details, along with our other free downloadable resources available on our website, theleadershippodcast.uk. Do get in touch. We would love to hear from you. And finally, it just leaves me to say thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Leadership Podcast with me, Sim Dendy. We hope this has helped serve you in your leadership because we know that when the leader gets better, everyone wins.